0: Do you remember the first time you took a sip of coffee? I'm not talking this morning, but that very first time you took a sip. Was it love at first taste? Not likely.
1: Most adults who drink their coffee still find it bitter. I mean, everybody remembers their first taste of coffee as a kid, right? It's a horrible, horrible drink. And I can't think of anybody that that actually liked their first taste of coffee. But... Over time, over repeated exposures, we learn we get all these cultural associations. Uh, for one thing, that nasty bitter flavor comes with a caffeine kick, which is good. Uh, for another thing, we drink coffee when we're with our friends, you know, we're we're talking, having a good time. It's a social lubricant, and that gives it positive associations too. So, even though it's still the same nasty bitter drink, those of us that love it do so because of other associations that we've formed.
0: Maybe the same when you first tried a beer, or at least one that was pretty hoppy. And of course, the bitterness of Brussels sprouts that took some convincing for your taste buds, or the idea that a lot of kids start out not being very fond of spicy dishes. But as you get older, some can't help but add some hot sauce to everything. I'm Andrew Campbell and this is Food Bubble, where today we tackle taste buds and answer the question Why do our taste for certain foods seem to change over time? Do wine sommeliers tasting currant and oak as notes in a wine have a better sense of taste? When the Grinch who stole Christmas starred in that 23andMe DNA testing ad.
2: says here loving salty snacks is in my DNA.
0: True. (laughs) Like he says, is it really that some like salty and some like sweet? One of our guests calls the taste sense the one we forget about the most. So let's bring it into the spotlight and find out how it all works to see if it can help us find more flavor in food or maybe get our kids to be better at finishing their vegetables.
3: Trillium Mutual Insurance is your ag insurer of choice in Ontario. They're farm insurance professionals who specialize in and understand Ontario agriculture, providing insurance solutions that are the best in the industry. We all know that insurance can be complicated, but does it have to be? Their real Ontario farm insurance brokers make it simple for you, providing the coverage you deserve. To find a broker partner near you, please visit their website, TrilliumMutual.com, and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium Mutual. Want to know more about where your food comes from in Canada? Farmfood360.ca gives you a 360-degree view of Canadian agriculture. There are dozens of videos featuring real Canadian farmers answering your questions about food, farming, and how it's all connected. You can even take virtual tours and see exactly what it's like to live and work on different Canadian farms. To learn more about Canadian agriculture, visit farmfood360.ca.
0: When it comes to kids, some seem to be pretty picky eaters, while others seem to devour whatever you put in front of them. While the latter is always handier, that picky eater seems to come out in almost everyone at one time or another. Would it help, though, if I told you you aren't alone? That not being keen on eating their salad or several other vegetables is actually how a lot of kids come programmed.
1: We know that newborn babies are hardwired to like sweetness and to dislike bitterness you can take you can take a newborn and give it something sweet, and it's its face lights up it enjoys that, and you can give it something bitter and it makes a yucky face so so we know that they're hardwired that way, and it makes sense that I mean one of the, baby better likes sweets so that it can find its mother's milk. Uh, I should actually back up a step because the learning about flavor happens even before birth uh there's really good evidence that babies learn in utero the flavors of what their mother eats. Yeah, there's a wonderful experiment where a bunch of pregnant women, you know, half of them were assigned to drink carrot juice most days of the week while they were pregnant in the third trimester, and the other half were told to avoid carrot juice. And then when their children, when their infants were ready to start eating solid food, the ones whose mothers drank carrot juice during pregnancy liked food laced with carrot better than the ones who didn't. So they they had already learned that this is part of their diet. This is part of food. And the same is true for what the mother eats while she's nursing, that some of those flavors make it through into the milk and essentially train the baby that these are good flavors.
0: It's a fascinating experiment in how a child acquires taste even before they are born or able to have any solid food. But maybe we should start from the beginning.
1: My name is Bob Holmes. I'm a science writer based in Edmonton.
0: One of the things he spent a lot of time researching was taste and flavor. And what he got out of it can be found in his book, Flavor, the Science of Our Most Neglected Sense*. Let's start there, Bob. What are we talking about when we talk about taste and taste buds? On the
1: tongue and inside the you know, lining of your cheeks and stuff, you have taste buds. And those have cells in them that have receptors for sweet sour salty bitter and umami which is the sort of savory flavor and so those are the basic tastes there may be one or two others there might be a taste for decomposing fat uh there might be a taste for actually some people even think water and carbon dioxide and calcium and stuff but basically let's stick with the main five so that's the first sensation it's just is it sweet is it sour Uh, and then at the same time you're getting airborne molecules drifting up into your nasal cavity where there's a little patch of tissue with olfactory receptors and you've got what it's like 400 different olfactory receptors Uh, some of them are broken some of them are not Uh, best guess is that You and I differ meaningfully in about 30% of our olfactory receptors, so we're actually smelling different things, perceiving different things in our food. But the the small molecules that are drifting up in the air bind to one or more of these olfactory receptors, and that's what makes a smell. Uh, Surprisingly, people don't know all the details about how it works.
0: Five main tastes on your tongue and 400 receptors connected to your sense of smell is what brings out that flavor, beyond just being sweet or sour or something. Take strawberry ice cream as an example.
1: Interesting experiment that you can do yourself anytime Next time you sit down with a bowl of strawberry ice cream, or anything else for that matter, pinch your nose and then take a bite of the ice cream and see what you taste. And you'll taste mm, sweet. Pretty much. That's about all you'll get. And then let go of the nose to bring smell back into the equation and all of a sudden now you know it's strawberry ice cream and not just something sweet in your mouth. Because now you've got smell going as well. Mostly air flowing up the back of your throat and into your nasal cavity. And so most of what we think of as flavor, as taste, which is the you know, loosely we use the term taste to refer to the whole experience. Uh, most of that is actually smell.
0: Even beyond that smell, though, our brain can take in information to influence that taste or that flavor even more.
1: There's a famous, famous study uh, from quite a while ago of researchers that took a bunch of students in the wine program at the University of Bordeaux in France. This is, you know, so these are people who are going to become wine professionals. They're a pretty savvy group, and they had them do a tasting which is something that they do regularly in a in wine program, obviously. And they gave them three glasses of wine and asked them to describe the aromas in the wine. And the, they gave them a glass of white wine, and it, sure enough, they came up with all the usual white wine descriptors. Oh, yeah, there's lemon here and some flowers, floral stuff, and, and so forth. And they gave them a, white, a red wine, and... They came up with the usual, yeah, you know, there's cherries or blackberries. And, oh, is that a little bit of cedar? You know, the usual red wine descriptors. Then they gave them another red wine, and they gave the usual red wine descriptors again. But that second red wine was actually the white wine with red food colouring added. And because they saw that it was red, they expected to find the red wine flavours, and they did.
0: There are lots of other studies out there that lead to similar answers with wine, too tell people to taste this cheap bottle of wine and this expensive bottle of wine and say which one is better and almost everyone says the expensive bottle is better. That's despite the fact that researchers switch the wines around so some are actually getting cheap thinking it's expensive. The mind is quite powerful in this area. The mind isn't the only one at play though.
2: My name is Eli Shamoon. Um, Currently I'm a science analyst at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency but Uh, Right before I did that, I was doing my PhD at the University of Guelph.
0: For Eli, that study for his PhD had him looking hard at taste, and for good reason.
2: Taste is is such an important factor for dietary intake, because really it's it's the interface between nutrients and the rewarding feeling of eating. And so there's no question that to understand eating habits, we have to understand taste. But while most people can appreciate that individuals have different senses of taste, they don't necessarily attribute that to genetics. So um, genetic variation in the genes that make our taste receptors on our tongues um, are likely what make each of us have a different uh, taste experience. And it's really important to then characterize that genetic variation.
0: When it comes to actually then doing some research, snacking was an area he wanted to focus on. After all, looking at local families around the city of Guelph, their team has found that about 30% of a child's calories come from snacks. So finding out what types of snacks a child wanted and when was an important goal. Eli started with sugar, or that taste for at least something sweet. Sure enough, a genetic variant could predict which child may be eating more sweet treats. Then they looked for the same with bitter. But instead of just predicting who was more likely to avoid bitter leafy vegetables because of a genetic variant that had been identified in the past, he wanted to know what it meant if a child had it.
2: Well, my hypothesis in my study was that those children who are avoiding those those vegetables would have more energy density in their snacks, which means that they would have a higher amount of calories for a lower weight of food. And and these are the types of foods that we, you know, are classically uh, supposed to be avoiding. And what we found was that children who have this trait of of, of being aversive to green leafy vegetables actually had higher energy density in their snacks. So this was uh, something, again, that was quite interesting to us.
0: So clearly a link between those genetic variants and what a child might eat or might not eat the next question though I've got for both Eli and Bob though is can anything be done about it? Bob's first point is a fascinating one and goes to why bitter is a taste we don't always appreciate at first.
1: Bitter often is a signal of of toxins in the food. Lots of to- lots of poisons are bitter. And so one of the functions of bitter taste is to warn us that this might not be good. For the first few months of their lives, babies will eat absolutely anything, pretty much. About the time that they start roaming around on their own, they start to get really ticky, especially about bitter things. And so it makes sense that you know if you're a hunter-gatherer and your kid all of a sudden can start wandering around and sampling things, it makes sense that it becomes really sensitive to, really averse to bitter flavors. Because those are the those are the things that maybe it's not a good thing to eat. You know, if it's sweet, it's probably a fruit and it's probably okay. But if it's bitter, you know that might be one of those poisonous plants. Uh, so you don't you don't want the kid to eat it. So we tend to be quite averse, especially as children, to bitters. But you know, by the, by the time you reach my age, you've learned that Brussels sprouts aren't going to kill you. And so so we learn that you know, that this is a warning sign we can safely ignore. And that's probably one of the reasons that our diets broaden.
0: But now that we've got labels that help tell us what will and won't kill us, Bob, can we actually get kids to ever eat their asparagus?
1: Simply exposure seems to be a big thing. You know, the, the leading researcher who studies children's you know, developing food tastes says just keep feeding them. Uh, you know, if you, if you want your kid to have, you know, to eventually have... Uh, a wide diet, you know, lots of things that they like to eat. Uh the main thing is continued exposure and having the parent eat the things. So the parent is modeling. If the parent is picky, probably the kid's going to be picky too. If the parent obviously is enjoying lots of different things and the kid keeps trying them. You know, the uh she says it takes often 10 or 12 exposures to a new food before a kid starts to tolerate them. And most parents don't have that kind of patience. You try the kid on asparagus two or three times, and then you decide, oh, well, I guess that's a failure. Uh, But if you stuck with it, eventually, uh, in most cases, the kid
0: will come around. And if you don't believe Bob, well, I hate to tell you, but Eli seems to agree.
2: When you increase the exposure of a food uh, to a child. That, um, that actually does change their perception and, and I totally agree with uh, with the idea of increasing exposure of a food and there is research to support that as well. But that's also uh, really an end goal of this research of looking at the relationship between genetics and taste because if, if this research for example can identify that some children would have this genetic predisposition to avoid certain foods, the end goal is actually to just focus focus more on those children and use these strategies that we, that we know uh, work in a lot of cases, in, like, such as increasing exposure to those foods. So increasing the exposure of green leafy vegetables to children who have this uh, genetic, uh, sort of uh, genetically based aversion to that food.
0: But let's not just talk about kids. If you're going to have a fight with them 10 times, you're going to want to appreciate that glass of wine when you've got them to bed. Or maybe that's just me. In any case, Bob, am I hopeless for being able to get more flavor or improve my sense of taste?
1: If you can tell that two glasses of wine are different, and most of us can, if I hand you two different, you know, a glass poured from two different bottles of completely different wine, you can tell that they're different. And that means you can perceive the actual flavors. What most of us lack is the vocabulary. We're very bad at putting words to flavors, uh, as it turns out, their processed you know, uh, smell and taste go to, go to the part of the brain that's not the conscious, the, not the highly evolved cortex first. They go to the old reptilian brain first, and that doesn't have very good access to words. So it's easy for us to describe what we see, and it's very, very hard to describe what we taste.
0: Then how do we get more flavor out of what we eat, Bob? The main thing is pay attention. Because
1: uh, most of us don't pay that much attention, even to, you know, if you're sitting around the table talking with friends, generally you're not paying a whole lot of attention to the wine. You just pick it up and take a drink and put it back down. Uh, but, you know, if you really want to savor the wine, just paying attention to it. If you want to savor the apple, what you eat, you're eating for a snack pay attention is it you know try and describe what you're experiencing is this an unusually tart apple is it has it got a lot of the really fruity fruity flavors is it how sweet is it how much bitterness are you getting from the peel you know all of those kinds of things if if we pay more attention and try and articulate what's happening we get better at it you know the 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 people who are professional wine wine critics, wine tasters, sommeliers, and so forth, typically don't have better noses than the rest of us. They're just better at paying attention. They have a better vocabulary for describing what they're tasting so that they can reliably come up with a word. Oh, this is blackberry. This is blackcurrant. I, I would bet if I can if I tested you you could tell the difference between a blackberry and a black currant. But if you're like me and I and you pick up a glass of wine I don't really know is that blackberry or black currant. Because I haven't practiced.
0: Practice. Seems easy enough. You practice tasting that wine and your kids practice those bitter vegetables. Seems like a fair trade to me. Either way, it's a way to make that neglected sense work a little bit better for you.
3: Who really cares about what you eat? You do and these 200-plus food experts. Bestfoodfacts.org connects you with leading university experts on food and farming in North America. With over 500 questions answered and new content weekly, it's a dependable source available across all social channels. Get the details you want from credible people who've dedicated their entire careers to the study of food. You care about what you eat, so take time to digest the facts. Visit bestfoodfacts.org today.
0: Next time on Food Bubble, the excitement of a Super Bowl ad.
3: Um, my king, this corn syrup was just delivered. That's
2: not ours. We don't brew Bud Light with corn syrup.
3: Miller Light uses corn syrup.
0: Let us take it to them at once! The conversation about corn syrup, and to an even greater extent, high fructose corn syrup, has been going on for the better part of a decade. So the question we have is, what's the difference between corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup? and because they're usually used as sweeteners, how are they different than sugar? Is there a sweetener that's better or worse for you? We'll find out how the syrups are made in the first place and then head into the food science department at Iowa State to find out how they affect our bodies. That's next week on Food Bubble. This episode of Food Bubble was produced by Jess Nicholson. If you want to learn more about Eli's study about the genetics of taste, or about Bob's book, Flavor, The Science of Our Most Neglected sense you can find that in the show notes, either from your podcast player or from our host, Anchor. While you are there, a rating and a comment would be a huge help. We rely on that for Apple and Google and all the others to rank us nice and high when people go searching for a new podcast to listen to. So in short, we just appreciate a couple of moments to give that rating. You can always pass on your comments to me as well. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as... Fresh Air Farmer. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.